Good morning, everyone. Well, this is our fifth week to study the miracle of the crossing of the Jordan River. And it's not that we've been picking over it meticulously. The Bible spends four chapters warming up to it and only gets around to it today. Um, and it's the miracle when they're about to enter, the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land in the book of Joshua. And uh, the Lord causes the river to be dammed up so it runs dry so that they can cross. Um, as we talk about miracles today, I want to say something strange about miracles. I want to say that it's easier to forget a miracle than you may think. Um, sometimes uh, we think, man, if God ever did a miracle like that in my life, parted a Jordan River or, or a Red Sea, uh, I, would, I would remember that and that would galvanize my faith and I would follow him faithfully for the rest of my life if I could see something like that. Now, the Bible tells a different story that people see miracles all the time and forget their meaning and kind of go back to treating God very casually after that. And sometimes we make fun of them for that. Um, you know, how could they act like that five minutes after something miraculous happened? But I don't, I can't do that. My own life kind of shows this story to be more true than the other one. When I was 20 years old, I still lived with my folks, and uh, one day it was a really sunny day outside, but, but not hot, just really nice. And so I went out and laid in a lawn chair on the deck, and I fell asleep. And uh, some time later, a shadow goes over my eyes, and I open my eyes just in time to see the talons of a hawk coming down out of the sky, wings folded back in the diving position. Evidently, I'd laid there still for so long while he circled <laughs> that he decided, yeah, that's dead. I'll go pick the eyes out of that. So, um, and so I was reflecting on that story a couple of years ago with my dad. And my dad said, do you remember that time God woke you in a dream? I said, what? He said, the time that, you, that the hawk was going to land on your face and you had a dream and it was just the voice and it said, Garrett, wake up. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, you came in five minutes after it happened and told us all about it. And I suddenly realized as he was telling the story that that is what happened. But I had told the story so many times and left out the dream part because, you know, we're just talking about when animals attack or crazy things about raptors, you know, and I didn't want to say, oh, and by the way, God spoke to me in a dream that day. You know, I had just left that part out, but I told the story repeatedly so many times without that part that I actually forgot that part ever happened. And I needed someone who was there five minutes after it happened and remembered to remind me that, that you know, God saved my eyeballs that day. <laughs> uh, Christian speaker Larry Crabb was uh, at a conference once and he told a story that I want to share that I think he said, he said, this perfectly illustrates how we often are with God's miracles. So Larry was 60 years old, somewhere in his 60s, and his three-year-old grandson came to visit for the weekend. And his three-year-old went up to the third floor bathroom and went in there and shut the door and somehow engaged the lock. Now this was a turn of the 20th century home, so it's one of those where you had the old skeleton key. That was long since lost. No one had those anymore. So when the three-year-old gets ready to leave the bathroom, he can't get out and he freaks out. 
So Larry runs upstairs just hearing the screams and his grandson's beating on the door and Larry's trying to yell through the door to a three-year-old how he can actually unlock it from the inside. Uh, but he's three and he's panicking and he's not having it. And so he just lays on the floor and shrieks. So Larry runs down three flights of stairs, goes around to the back of the house. He can still hear his grandson screaming through the third story window. And he realizes from the back of the house, the only way up there is to climb a rain gutter. Now, Larry's in his 60s, and let's say not in climbing shape, but the, the, the uh, you know, the screams of his grandson and probably the fear of his daughter, you know, which <laughs> you let what happen? And so it just energizes him, and he starts climbing a three-story rain gutter. And when he gets up to the window, he can kind of put one foot out on a steeply sloped roof, and he reaches over to open the window. Oh, no, that window has been painted many times in this position. It's painted shut. And, uh, but just the panic of the boy. And he, he starts, wham, wham on the window. And finally, wham, he breaks the paint seal, breaks the little latch held with the one screw. He pulls the window up. He climbs in. He's drenched in sweat, every muscle fatigue. He crawls across the bathroom floor. He reaches up, unlatches the door. And the kid says, thanks, Papa, and runs off. <laughs> and there he lays, drenched in sweat, panting for breath on the verge of a heart attack. And he said, I stared at the ceiling and I realized this is how I often am with God. I get myself into a mess. I cry out to him to save me. He marshals the miracles of heaven to rescue me. And then I run off and play with barely a thank you and hardly a memory that I was ever in trouble. It's easier to forget a miracle than we think. Maybe that's why right here in Joshua chapter 4, between the miraculous damming of the Jordan River in chapter 3, and the falling of the walls of Jericho, which we don't have time to get to, I'm so sorry, in chapter 6. In between the walls of Jericho and the parting of the Jordan River comes this chapter, chapter 4. When all the people had crossed the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Now choose twelve men from among each tribe. Tell them, take twelve stones from the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the river. Carry them out and pile them up at the place where you will camp tonight. They made a stack of stones. They made a stack of stones. Um, a little side note here, and now we're going to run however long this story is long today. Um, the first worship song we sang, Come Thou Fount, there's that line in there, here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy hope I come. And you're wondering, like, why is Scrooge in this, in this story? So um, Hebrew for stone is Eben. And a helper or a rescue is an azar. And so if you're stacking some rocks up to remember God's help, it's an Eben Azar. Eben Azar, Eben Azar. Got it? Okay. And so in that song, it's like, here I raise my stack of stones to remember this is the way God brought me. And that's what they do. They raise up a stack of stones. Uh, we will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them. They remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. So these are a stack of stones meant for children to look and go, what's that mean? They're meant to spark a question that leads to a story. We do this in our own homes, in our own lives all the time, not necessarily with a stack of rocks, though sometimes. 
You know, sometimes we'll have a, a decoration in our house. We'll put up a picture. We'll have an unusual souvenir. Sometimes we even bring back a rock and we put it somewhere in our house so that people will say, oh, this is interesting. What's this? And you can say, oh, let me tell you. Let me tell you about where that came from. I've seen people do this with jewelry, you know. Oh, that's an unusual necklace. That's an interesting bracelet. Where'd you get that? Oh, let me tell you why I, why I got this, why I put this on every day. Um, I've seen it with tattoos. I love to ask people. Sometimes you can just tell this tattoo it's got something extra going on. I'll say, does that have a meaning? And very often it does. And there's quite, quite a story there. Um, it's meant to spark a question that tells a story. Um, isn't that like what every Christmas tradition is or every holiday tradition period? It's for that moment that children will ask, why do we give gifts to each other on Christmas? Oh, we give gifts to each other to be grateful and remind us of the greatest gift God ever gave us. Christ Jesus. You know, the really weird stuff, like why do, we, why do we hide Easter eggs? Why do we hide Easter eggs on Easter? I'm so glad you asked. You know, eggs represent new life, right? That baby chicks just miraculously come out of them. Um, and we remember that there was a morning when some women went out early on this Sunday morning and they were looking for the body of Jesus, but they couldn't find him because he's risen. He's risen indeed. And new life has come. And, and all those traditions, your own story, your own testimony is meant to remind us of what God has done. That's why as often as we can, we have people come up here and tell my story so we can say like, oh, God has acted in our midst. God is still acting uh, in this world. It helps us to remember what God has done. The question is, why is it so important to remember what God has done? Other than general gratitude, there must be something because the Bible's so heavy on this theme. Remember what the Lord your God has done. So years ago, um, I preached a message that kind of ended with the fruit of the Spirit from the New Testament. You know, love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And at the end of the message, I said, we're going to have some elders here, and you can come forward, and we'll anoint you with oil, and, and you can pray for any one of these fruit of the Spirit that you need in your life this morning. You can pray for love. You can pray for peace. You can pray for um, uh, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Come forward and we'll pray for you. Interestingly, although you had eight to choose from, 95% of you all prayed for the same fruit of the Spirit. You all prayed for peace, the same thing you probably pay for right now. Some of you said patience because you're in the 5%. 95% of people that morning prayed for peace. We were shocked. I, it perplexed me so much. A couple of months later, I sent you out a survey and said, why did 95% of you pray for peace? And mo almost everyone said the same thing. My life is so crazy. This world is so crazy. I don't know what's going to happen. And it brings me such anxiety. I need peace. When you're facing an uncertain future, the greatest predictor of what's going to happen is generally the, the past, what has happened. Every once in a while in our world, something truly new will happen, but mostly the things that happen, happen very much as they have happened before and follow a similar pattern. That's why uh, young people go crazy and old people are like, I've seen this before. Different day, you know, same story, different names. So um, the Bible tells us that God, what God has done is our greatest promise from him of what he's going to do. 
And he invites us all the time to look at what I have done. And that is my promise of what I'm going to do. And so it brings us, it brings us peace. Even when God does something pretty new. I mean, the coming of Jesus, God with us, his life, his death on the cross, the resurrection, these are all fairly new things, but even they have all sorts of warm-up events in the Old Testament, and we preach them here all the time. How many times do you hear someone stand up here and say, when they preach an Old Testament passage, saying this prepares our heart for Christ, and this prefigures Christ's resurrection and his suffering on the cross, and this prepares the world to understand what Jesus is doing when he dies and rises again. So even the newest thing God ever did had lots of warm-ups where he said, look at what I've done. It will help you understand what's happening right now. This is why we, we celebrate the Advent every year. You know, that, that, that season that of a few weeks that leads up to Christmas. When we remember what it was like for those people then to wait for the coming of the Messiah in a time of hopelessness and darkness. But then against all odds on Christmas night, Jesus is born and the Messiah comes. And he's rescued from King Herod and all the rest of it. And we study that every single year because now we're a people who wait for Christ's second coming. And we wait in our own time of darkness. We wait in our own time of hopelessness. And we tell ourselves that story every year so that we can say, he overcame all odds once to come to us. He will do it again. He will do it again. We celebrate Lent and Passion Week and Easter for the same reason. We remember Jesus' temptation in that time every year. We remember his rejection. We remember his death. And then on Easter, we come and celebrate that God turned all three of those upside down on Easter morning when he raised from the tomb. And now he's made king of the universe. And now the devil and his powers are defeated. And now death is overturned. And God has launched a new plan starting with him and someday for all resurrection to eternal life. That's awesome. And we celebrate that every year because when we come to our time of temptation and our time of rejection and, and when death comes near to us, we remember our resurrection hope and what God has done and we believe he will do this also for me. And it gives us hope. It gives us hope all the way up to our very last breath. When you tell your story, it reminds you of the seas God has parted for you, the diseases he has healed, the relationships he has mended, the jobs he has given, taken, and given again. And, and, it, and it, it just begs the question, if God has brought me this far, what is the likelihood, now that I'm kind of in a pickle again, what is the likelihood he intends to abandon me suddenly now? Probably not high. So although this time is horrible, I have some peace because I remember what God has done. That's the value of remembering of what God has done. So they built a stack of stones. They can remember what God has done. At the end of chapter 4, it says, He did this so all the nations of earth might know that the Lord's hand is powerful, and so you might fear the Lord your God forever. Okay, that you might fear the Lord your God forever. So these days, um, when anxiety especially is rampant, I think, we fear fear so much that we kind of wish this verse would just go out of the Bible. Um, and we wish it would just be gone. The problem is that that phrase, fear of the Lord, occurs dozens and dozens of times. So even if I could scratch it out with a marker here, I would have to attack it in most of the books of the Bible. 
um, we just cannot get away from the fear of the Lord and all that the Bible says about the fear of the Lord. It's not going away. And so the best we can do is just try to understand it and understand what it means. So first thing he says is, I did this, you're remembering, so that uh, all the other nations of the world will know that the Lord's hand is powerful. So this stack of rocks is in some way a warning to other nations that they might fear the Lord. It's kind of God saying, I did some miracles, a handful of really big miracles to bring these people to this land. So all you other nations, you can attack them if you want, you can persecute them if you would like, but... A pretty powerful God has brought them here, and you know, you might want to think that through before you come over here. But he also says, so that you yourselves will fear the Lord your God forever. So why should the people of Israel fear the Lord? Why should you and I fear the Lord? So here's kind of where the fear of the Lord is very useful to you and I. When you're in that place where you're afraid you're not going to get something you really, really want. And you're so afraid you're not going to get it that you're willing to just maybe reach out and take it. Um, reach out with a compromise, reach out in anger, reach out with control, reach out in impatience because you're just afraid that you're not going to have it. And fear of the Lord causes you to stop and say, maybe you ought to think about the God who made you before you compromise his values, before you lash out in anger in a way that is against him, before you upset him, maybe you should think about this all-powerful God who holds your whole future before you try to take one for yourself. Maybe you should fear him a little more than what you're about to do. The fear of the Lord is very useful when you're in that place where you're in a bad situation and you want out of that bad situation so much, you're willing to sin to get out of it. You're willing to lie you're willing to steal, you're willing to cheat to, to get out of the bad situation that you're in. The fear of the Lord comes and says, maybe you should think that through. Maybe this isn't worth that. As horrible as this is, there is someone who wields a greater power over the whole universe. And maybe you should think about him and what he would want before you do that. The fear of the Lord's not that different than like when teenagers are encouraged by their friends to go and do something awful. And they say, oh, I can't do that. My parents would kill me. They're parents who love them. They're parents who protect them. But they're parents who wield a more terrible power than their buddies. It's, it's a good fear to have. It's a fear we try to send our kids in the world with. We wish we could send them out with perfect morals. But between the ages of 13 to 17, I'll settle for a little fear. It, it gets the job done. Um, the fear of the Lord is useful when you feel a pain and you want to be free of that pain so much that you're willing to do something self-destructive to numb it. It's a substance. It's a taboo behavior. It's, it's, it's something that's going to bring you a moment's relief, and that's what you want so bad that you forget the long term. But the fear of the Lord says, think about the long term. Think about if there isn't a better way. Think about if there isn't a higher cost. Think about the one who will protect you and wants the best for you. Maybe, maybe just choose to fear him more in this moment. Gosh, I want out of this so bad, but I probably want to stay on the good side of my God more. So the fear of the Lord can be a very good and useful thing. Now, some of you are in such the grip of a terrible fear this morning. 
something so horrible, the greatest fear of your life. And the thought of remembering what God has done to get you through is just not going to cut it. I mean, you just, you truly feel that God has abandoned you and that he is not hearing your prayers. I would want to say, first of all, that I get it. I, I was there less than a year ago. I honestly said, Lord, I, it, I, it, I think you may have forgotten me. You, you, I think you may be passing me by here. Um, so I get it. I have no judgment for you. I understand. Uh, I also know that what I think about it actually doesn't matter. What the more important question is, how does God feel about that? And I would want you to know that he gets it too. He understands also. In Jesus, he experienced that feeling. And Jesus' answer was not to remember what God has done. Jesus didn't stack up any stones to get him through the cross. Here's what I believe the spiritual life gives to those of you who are in the grip of it today. To open the Psalms. The Psalms is that middle book of the Old Testament. It's just filled with prayers. And pray Psalm 22. Pray Psalm 22. That's the prayer Jesus prayed from the cross. When he couldn't understand where God was and and why it was becoming so dark and terrible, Jesus cried out from the cross, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I cry out, but you do not hear. So when you're in that place, open the Psalms each day and read one of those prayers. You're like, I can't pray. That's the problem. That's why I just said open it and read it. Take the words the Holy Spirit has given to us and read them and let the Holy Spirit in you pray them back to God and it begins to do something. It begins to do something. In fact, 75 of the 150 prayers in there are for you. 75 of the 150 prayers recorded in the Psalms ask this question. God, where are you? And they're for you, and that's your season. Your your time for stacking stones and remembering what God has done, that's later. And then this miracle that we've been studying comes to an end at last. Verse 15. The Lord had said to Joshua, command the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant to come up out of the riverbed. So Joshua gave the command. As soon as the priest carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came up out of the riverbed and their feet were on high ground, the water of the Jordan River, uh, the Jordan returned and overflowed its banks as before. So as we said last week, 18 miles away, the water's piling up at the village of Adam. There's some sort of mudslide or earthquake that's dammed the river. But as that, as that water piles up, it's gaining strength and mass. And at some point, it's going to have the power to push through that debris. And then the flood is coming back and watch out downstream. It's probably going to be stronger than it was before. And so at precisely the moment God gives the command, they step out of the river, the water starts to rise, and in minutes, it's a flooding torrent again. And Joshua, I believe, looked down into that water and said, I left something down there. Joshua left something down there. It's a little tiny verse in the middle of chapter four, everybody. You can almost miss it. I read like five commentaries on this, and two of them didn't even notice. Um, Verse nine. 
Joshua also set up another pile of 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. And they are there to this day. While everyone else was taking a big rock and carrying it up to the camp, Joshua went down into the riverbed and built his own stack of stones. And then he stepped back and the water rushed over it. But Joshua said, it's still down there. It's still down there to this day. You see, there are the memorials that we build to spark a question to tell a story that everyone can see. And then there's the ones that only you and God know are there. It's the remains of a loved one that you scattered in a meaningful place. And you go back to that place and and you can't see any part of that now, but you know it's there. And the story of them and their life and what God brought to you through their life is all retold in, in your heart. It's, it's um, that song that comes on the radio. It's that place on the trail, that tree in the field, that secret childhood place where you had a moment with God that only you know about. Um, I confess, I still... On, on some really bad days, I still drive out to 150 Highway and I park in the cul-de-sac of the home I grew up in and I look up at the window on the right and I remember that 29 years ago, I said, God, if you will save me from this, I will follow you forever. And I think just on the other side of that glass window, this all started. Did he start all that just to abandon me today? Probably not. I'm in the place where it happened. It happened right there. It's that movie you sneak off to watch by yourself. It's that smell that reminds you of grandpa's. It's that scar on your body that no one can see. But a tale is told of a walk you once walked with God. It's all the names you wrote under the floor out there in the lobby and behind the paint on the walls and on the pillars of things we hope God will do and things that God has done. What I would want you to do with a message like this is if you have a miracle right now in mind, you know, build your stack of stones or whatever it is because you think you're going to remember this and you're, and you're not. Life will crowd it out. So build the place that sparks the story, sparks the question that tells the story so you can remember what God has done the next time you're back in a place like this. And if you don't have something like that this morning, the next time you pray a prayer and God has answered it, mark that day with something. Mark that day with something so that you don't forget all the ways that God has brought you. There is another Joshua who has given us a memorial, and we call him Jesus. Did you know that Joshua, this guy, and Jesus, they have the same name? Did you know that? Jesus and Joshua have the same name? So this guy who built this stack of stones, in, in the Hebrew Bible, his name is Yeshua. And if you take Yeshua straight into English, it's Joshua. That's not hard to hear, Yeshua becomes Joshua. But on Christmas night in Bethlehem, 
Mary also named her baby Yeshua. It means God saves. She named him Yeshua. But when you take the Hebrew letters for Yeshua and you switch them out for Greek letters, they don't make quite the same sound anymore. They say Yesu. Yesu in Greek. And if you take Yesu on a little journey through ancient European languages, Yesu becomes Jesu, and Jesu becomes Jesus. And if you take a left at Spanish, it becomes Jesus. But we're going to English, so hang a right where Jesus becomes Jesus. And it's the same name. And he gave us two remembrances. He gave us baptism. When we go down into the water, it's like being buried with him in the tomb. And when we come up out of the water, it's like rising again. It's, it's our remembering what's made it possible and our hope for our own resurrection. So that's one. He's also given us another, which we celebrate far more often in, in our church sanctuary. And that's the Lord's table. In Luke 22, it says, When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now, I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Now Luke traveled around with an old rabbi named Paul. And Paul recorded a version of these events which we have heard so often because the Lord's table is something we do in this sanctuary that uh, sparks a question to tell a story. And we've done that so many times here that you'll actually be able to play fill in the blank here with me. We're going to lead ourselves to the table here with the story we've heard so much that we can all play fill in the blank. 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was... The Lord took some and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. You didn't even have to buy a vow. So, so when we come forward, we're remembering what God has done. And so whatever it is that you're facing this morning, you can ask, did Jesus do all this for us so that he could abandon us now? Probably not. And so I will have peace. Amen. Oh,